Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. Well, good morning. If you're uh, here for the first time, my name is Landon. I'm the more boring staff member that you have to listen to for longer. So it's really a smart combination. A couple quick things. I, I'm not really a great listener, like in class and school and stuff. You're supposed to take notes and listen, and I'm really bad at that. I could just read later and I'll do fine. So I'm not positive what Nate just said, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he was out of gratitude, which is like really deeply sincere and heartfelt, and attempting to be thankful and compliment his team. He said we have a pretty decent team. By that, he meant exceptional and awesome. So if you're on that team, I just want to clarify on Nate's behalf, because I hear him all the time. Uh, Also, I don't know, well, no, I do know why I'm sharing this. So first service, I'm sitting with my son, one kid per Sunday gets to come with me to to church. And they're still young enough that that's like, they fight over that. They want to to come with dad to church. That's going to change at some point. Probably we'll fight it off and throw great parties and do the best we can to avoid that. But they they fought about it this morning. So Ellis, my son, got to, to come with me and we're sitting in the first service and he goes, hey, dad, while worship is going on, he goes, hey, can I, can we take that? And he points at the communion and I'm like, no, but not today. We'll, we'll talk about it in between the week because it's important. And I want you to know what it means and what it's about. And he goes, Dad, I already know what it's about. And I'm like, okay, well, while we're singing, this is all while we're singing. And he's like, he tells me and he's right. So I'm like, okay, well, then here's what we'll do, buddy. I'll go get you out of class a little bit early as soon as I'm done teaching. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. We'll pray. We'll take communion together. So we did. And it was this beautiful, good moment. And at six, he's grasping things. And you get to see Jesus and the Spirit just slowly grab a hold of a young one's heart and teach them that, that he's trustworthy. So that was cool. And then we're, we're in this service. And he goes, hey, Dad. And I'm like, yeah, bud. And he goes, hey, while we're singing, if you had like on a uniform, would it hurt if you got shot by a BB gun? <laughs> and I was like, wow, we just, whoo. So I was like, I, I don't know, man. Like, it depends on the uniform, I guess. Mike, let's, let's pay attention. And then like three minutes later, he goes, hey, dad, can a car drive in the snow? And I was like, well, we'll talk about it later, buddy. And the reason I share that is this. We want to be a a church that feels like the everyday stuff of life. And with a six-year-old boy, that's how it goes. Like, there's moments of depth and maturity and conversation, and that's great. Then there's moments of airsoft guns and uniforms and driving in the snow. And we want you to know, like, don't pretend to be anything different than that. That's my life. That's Nate's life. There's good moments. There's so many moments I mess up royally as a father, as a husband. And so we want to be a people, a family that don't come to a church that's a building, but a people that follow Jesus and learn to trust him and the everyday stuff of our lives. So thanks for being with us. That's my spiel that I wasn't planning on sharing, but there we go. If you have a Bible, Ezekiel chapter 34. 
while you're turning there, today I'm gonna, um, we're gonna talk about some things that are really simple, like profoundly simple. And some of you will have the humility to go, okay, I hear that. Some of you will not have that humility. You'll be like, no, this guy's wrong. And so I'm just gonna put that out there and we'll decide which one you are. Let's put this uh, <laughs> screen on. Don't be a sheep. I could pretty much guarantee that at least seven people in this room have that as a bumper sticker. I just am pretty sure. Maybe the mask isn't on there, but you have some version. And some of you are like, amen. That's fantastic. I agree. And some of you are like, oh, no, it's one of those churches. So I think we have everybody on probably all sides of the, the spectrum in this room politically as it related to masks. I can say related past tense for the most part, which I'm thankful for. But forget the masks, forget if you're politically left, right, middle, think you're the middle, think you're the left, think you're right, whatever, it doesn't matter. What's interesting to me about this don't be a sheep concept is that no matter how significantly you think that you think independently, you don't. No matter how much you want to not be a sheep, as it relates to masks or this or that or whatever it is, you are. And you can fight that as much as you want as you sit in the seat that you're sitting and thinking and breathing and singing in today, but it's a reality. And let me explain this a little bit. The studies from a non-Christian standpoint show that the majority, like the vast majority, statistically speaking, of our day is not spent with us making decisions. It's meant with us making reactions. And decisions and reactions are two very different things. To decide something is to independently, fully consciously aware, make a choice for yourself. To step back and remove yourself from outside influences, emotions, neurological ones, other people, our pasts, our histories, things we're feeling that day, what's happened. We react to those again and again and again throughout a day. But we think, we perceive that those things are actually decisions. And almost always, they're not decisions, they're reactions. Here's a, a few thoughts from people smarter than me on that. Our decisions, actions, emotions, and behavior depends on 95% of our brain activity that goes on beyond our conscious awareness. To throw a different number at you, the ratio of what we sense with the unconscious to what we perceive in consciousness is one million to one. So on any given day, you think you are making all of these choices, but really you've been trained to react, and what you're actually doing is reacting. From before you took your first breath, and even in the womb, the blood started to flow, you have this thing called DNA and genetics, and realities, and tendencies, and likes, and dislikes that are forming who you are and the type of reactions you're going to make from before you take your first breath on this planet. And then you're born into a certain family with a certain mom from a certain dad into a certain culture and context, and, and maybe it was an affluent one. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a politically left or politically right. Maybe you weren't born in this country. Maybe in that house, multiple languages were spoken. Maybe just one. 
Maybe these were the values, maybe they weren't. And then you grow up and you spend time in certain people's homes or certain teachers or coachers. Those are great. I love coachers. <laughs> we, we all need some good coachers in our life. Educators, certain political ideologies. Day after day after day, there's a million little things that are forming how you react. And we assume those are decisions. But the science says those aren't actually decisions. Timothy Wilson puts it this way. Consciousness is like the child who plays a video game at an arcade without putting any money into it. He moves the control, unaware that he is seeing a demonstration program that is independent of his actions. The child consciousness believes he is controlling the action, while in fact the software and the machine, non-consciousness, is completely in control. And that's the difference between our reactions and our decisions. Side note, my my two, almost three-year-old is kind of unfortunately a genius, apparently. We're trying to play Super Smash Bros. yesterday. It was the Sabbath day, and so my son wanted to play Super Smash Bros., and my two-year-old wanted to play. She's not very good at it yet, so we didn't really want to play with her in the moment. So we gave her a remote, and she's like, no, it's not plugged in. I thought we could fake her out. She's like, no. So I, I tried to like plug it into the couch and go like, here we go. And she's like, no, Dad, it doesn't work. I was like, well... You're pretty intelligent, which is unfortunate in this moment, but will be great for society later. One more uh, quote on this topic. PhD, Cleve Stevens in his book, The Best in Us, is this. We as human beings are not the conscious, rational beings we think we are. In fact, the majority of our cognitive activity, our thinking, occurs at an automatic, unconscious level. Thus... In effect, we must become conscious of the fact that we are largely unconscious beings, driven by our unconscious impulses, attitudes, and perceptions. The truth of this matter and its vast consequences are lost on most of us, but the facts are the facts. It is not pleasant to hear, but most of us live our lives in a kind of autopilot mode, an almost dazed state of repetition, of automatic action and reaction, all the while thinking we are operating from a conscious state of mind. Most of the time, we don't think. Most of the time, we merely react and tell ourselves that it is thinking. In essence, we fool ourselves. So let's go back to that 95% number. That means 5% of our day, if you will, is spent making choices and decisions, not mere reactions. And if that's the case then who we are shepherded by, who's influencing the, those responsible for our formation, our thinking, our feelings, what's going on around us is probably way more important than you've ever given credit to because those influences influence you more than you influence you. The Bible calls us sheep too. So if you don't like it, you just kind of have to deal with it. <laughs> As Jesus says so, and the scientists say so, and I'm saying so, so you can, that part's not as important. Ezekiel 34, here's what God says happens when there's bad shepherds being the primary influences in our lives. The word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel the prophet, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? 
You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. They were scattered over the whole face of the earth. And there was no one searching or seeking for them. It's the reality of the impact of bad shepherds for sheep, which we are, whether we want to admit it or not. Kind of put into list form what the actions of bad shepherds here are. In verse 2, we see they think only of themselves and material gain. They do not care for the flock. Verse three, instead of feeding the flock, they feed on the flock. In verse four, they are harsh and brutal in their rule. They leave the weak, sick, and injured to fend for themselves. To this I'll add, especially after their use for the bad shepherds has run out. They do not search for strays or bring back the lost. And in verse seven, they allow the sheep to be plundered and to become food for wild animals. Israel had to be aware of multiple threats as a nation, really two types. One was internal, one was external. The internal, what we often maybe refer to as wolves in sheep's clothing. There were imposters pretending to be like good leaders, like good shepherds, like good protectors and guides, yet they weren't. These were the religious leaders in-house. Then there was the external threats. These were the other nations. They were just plain old wolves. They didn't pretend to, to not be or disguise themselves as anything else. They just sought harm to God's people. Israel needed to be aware of both of those types of threats. For us, when it comes to the, the daily 95% of our lives that we're reacting to influences around us, not deciding, I see four primary versions that I've categorized of bad shepherds, and I want to talk about those a little bit. The first kind of bad shepherd is incompetent shepherds. The, the danger with incompetent shepherds, they might be the actually most dangerous of this list, though they'll seem maybe the least dangerous, is that they're often really good-hearted. They actually want what is best for you. They want good. They'll even seek it out, pay for it, try to help the issue is not with the heart, but with the competency in this case. Now, hopefully you had primarily good, competent shepherds in your life, but chances are some of the people who were good-hearted weren't fully competent. Unfortunately, that could be parents, certainly could be pastors, authors, teachers, church leaders, could have been coaches, like I said earlier, could be anybody that had influence, had a responsibility to care for and guide and protect and teach. The, the problem with this category is that even good-hearted shepherds will fail you eventually. Even good-hearted shepherds can be incompetent shepherds. And that makes them a, a bad shepherd that we have to keep an eye out for, be aware of. Second category is what we'll refer to as deal friends. Dr. Arthur Brooks kind of makes this designation between real friends and deal friends. Real friends are friends that just care for you for who you are. 
Deal friends are, are friends that are friends for as long as there's a deal in place. As long as you offer something to them and vice versa. As long as it's this mutually beneficial friendship and relationship. You might refer to yourself as friends, but as soon as that deal is over, that working relationship or the benefit that maybe went both ways comes to an end, the friendship also comes to an end. Again, that could be kind of anybody in your life. The next category is harmful and something very popular to talk about today in, in our culture, really especially within in church circles. And we'll talk about this in our, our next practice in August and September when we talk about D and Reconstruction. But this, this title is Users and Abusers. Again, that could be pastors. Yay me, we have a great reputation. Again, authors, teachers, leaders, whoever it is in your life that maybe has some semblance of authority. It could be a neighbor that's just like, charismatic or seems to have a, a better grasp on theology or uh, an intellect that's beyond yours perhaps that you rely on but eventually though they sell this vision of leading you to good they take you to a place where you're just used they don't care about you they just use you to get the good and benefit for themselves lastly is just plain evil the demonic, evil-engineered, Satan-led, which is very real, and he's good at what he does. There's bad, evil shepherds we have to be aware of as the sheep that we are. And most likely, the less willing you are to admit that you're a sheep, the more prone to harm and being misled you are. Let you wrestle with that a little bit. So you're probably really encouraged at this point. Here's the, the good news, though, is that God steps in. We see this in, in verse 7, and I love this. God doesn't just have this relationship between us and him. He speaks often directly to those bad shepherds, and we, we see this here. God says this, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, the declaration of the Lord God. Can you kind of sense that he's serious about this. He's saying, here's who I am. I'm not just anybody. I'm not just a good teacher, a moral guide, some guy with wisdom. I'm not just one of the gods. I am the God Almighty. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, the declaration of the Lord God, because my flock has become prey and food for every wild animal since they lack a shepherd, for my shepherds do not search for my flock, and because this, these shepherds feed themselves rather than my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. That is... Good news. Even though we are sheep easily led astray, the more pride we have, the easier we are to lead astray. The good news is that God doesn't just stand by. He steps in and he opposes these bad shepherds. Maybe you've heard of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We fast forward and we get to this part where Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples to pray, he says, you should pray like this, deliver us from evil. We've talked about this a time or two. Notice he does not say, give us the right tactics. Give us the right training. 
teach us how to deliver ourselves from evil. That is not something you will see Jesus say. He says, deliver us from evil. Who's the main character? Who's the hero here? Jesus, not us. Now, there's certainly portions of the scriptures that tell us to be on our guard, even with the military-type level of intensity and intention. But Jesus is always the hero. Jesus is always the main character. Jesus is always the one we should be dependent on, not ourselves. Deliver us from evil. Jesus does not take the sheepness away from us. He doesn't say you're not sheep now. He says you're still sheep, but I am the good shepherd. Continue to to read in, in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them into their own land. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them with good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. The Lord God says to you, my flock, I am going to judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and male goats. Isn't it enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Or isn't it enough that you drink the clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what your feet have trampled and to drink what your feet have muddied. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. You see that again? He's saying, I am speaking. Pay attention. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Since you've pushed with flank and shoulder and butted all the weak ones with your horns until you scattered them all over, I will save my flock and they will no longer be prey for you. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will appoint over them a single shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate dangerous animals in the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. I will make them in the area around my hill a blessing. That's so good to note. Sometimes we get caught up thinking about salvation, which is good, and thinking about Jesus' sacrifice on a cross, which is good, and then thinking about Jesus' resurrection from the grave, which is good. And we lose sight of the fact that our God is just good and he wants to bless his people. I will make the land they live in a blessing. I will send down showers in their season, showers of blessing, The trees of the field will give their fruit and the land will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land. They will know that I am Yahweh when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be prey for the nations and the wild animals of the land will not consume them. They will live securely and no one will frighten them. I will establish for them a place renowned for its agriculture and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land. They will no longer endure the insults of the nations. Then they will know that I, Yahweh their God, am with them 
and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Let me put that long passage kind of in in list form for you. First thing in that list, God says he will do. He says, I will rescue. Are you lost? Are you confused? Are you searching for purpose and meaning and direction? Just like the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, God doesn't say, go find yourself. He says, I will find you. I will rescue. He says, I will remove you from the mouths of predators. I will look for my sheep. This is such good news. Are you drowning in darkness and the storm? Have you chosen to wander off? He doesn't say, hey, I'll I'll wait for you here. He says, I will look for my sheep. If you're lost, he's being searched for. It says, I will rescue them from all the places they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from all the lands. Those nations and lands refer to other places with different gods and ideologies, thinking, beliefs, and values. And what Jesus says is, I will go to those places. I won't yell from a distance, hey, come back here. I will go to them and I will bring them back because that's the type of God that he is. He will take them from bad company, corrupted people, people leading them astray and bring them to a place of health. I will tend them in good and rich pasture where they can lie down in peace. Are you lacking? Are you filled with anxiety and fear? Are you worried about things behind you, things in front of you, decisions, finances, relationships? His promise is to make a land of peace. I will search for the lost and bring back strays. Sheep get lost a lot. You and I get lost a lot. And he just keeps searching. That's the theme you can hear here. I will bring them peace and rid the lands of danger. I will place over them one shepherd. I will bless them. It is good to have the almighty God of the universe who made all brilliant, good, enjoyable things say, I will bless them. Like That's good. I will cause nature to bless them. They will receive good from the land. I will break the yoke that crushes them. There's something crushing you. A system, an oppression, a relationship, a habit, sin itself. He says, I will break that yoke. I will bring them to safety and remove their fear. There's something theologically we have to understand here when we receive these types of promises from God, and it's often referred to with this phrase of the already and the not yet, and the concept's fairly simple but important. It's that Jesus has already been the victor. The war is over. He already died on the cross. He already rose from the grave. He's already conquered sin and death and Satan. But that process is not yet fully complete. There's still pain and brokenness. Sin is still wreaking havoc and causing destruction. And there's still people and spirits leading us astray. But one of the the best explanations I've I've heard of this and I've shared it is uh, kind of historians looking at World War II. And at one point, the war was all but over. There was no chance for Germany to win. Everybody recognized this. But it wasn't until that point when the war was all but over that there would still be a few battles left 
And what history shows is that the most bloodshed and some of the most severe damage and destruction and pain was caused after the war was over, but there were still some loose ends to tie up. There were still a few more battles that would happen, even though the result had been determined and would not change. It's kind of what this is like. Jesus is victorious. He cannot lose. He's already won but there's still an impact and an effect of sin until that final day. We have to be aware of that timing of the already and the not yet. I love verse 31, the last verse in, in chapter 34. Hear this, it's a message from God to you. This is what he says. You are my flock, the human flock of my pasture, and I am your God. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Though we may not be comfortable with the terminology, it is good to be sheep of this God. Sheep of his pasture, blessed by him, the sovereign Lord, because he leads us to good. Incompetent shepherds don't lead you to good. Deal friends will give up on you at some point. Users and abusers will make promises that seem as if they can carry it out and bring you to good, but eventually they'll just discard you and you're not worth anything anymore. And just plain evil, obviously, is seeking to kill and destroy. But we have a good shepherd. When I, when I think about our role in this, sometimes it's, it's hard to describe because it's all grace. It's all the goodness of God. Uh, our salvation, our life is 100% solely dependent on him but we do have a role to play in the everyday stuff of life as we make decisions to trust Jesus or to trust other influences. And that's where this 95%, 5% number comes in of our brain's ability to cognitively, consciously make decisions, not just reactions. That's our role. I was thinking about this and I was reminded of the movie The Guardian with Ashton Kutcher, Kevin Costner, and they're like rescue swimmers. should be terrifying. And there's a scene at the end where they go out in this helicopter to, to make a save for this ship. And the ship's pumps aren't keeping up with all the water that's coming on board. And it's just a matter of time until it sinks. And the helicopter flies out there and it's pitch black. It's a storm. It's windy. There's no light in the sky. There's just the light from the spotlight shining down through all of the water pouring and the rain. And the men on the ship are, are crying out, we're over here, we're over here. And the rescue swimmers, swimmers dive in. And they start swimming through the, the massive waves and they eventually climb on board. And then there's this, this moment where the one that needs rescued reaches out and then the rescuer reaches out. And if all you see is that glimpse, you'd go, oh, they're doing equal parts. Like they're both reaching out for each other. And the one that needs rescued reaching out matters. Like it makes a big difference in that moment that the rescuer has a hand to grab to save the person from the stormy sea. But it's very simple that the rescuer is not rescuing, or excuse me, the one getting rescued has nothing to do really with his own rescue. He cannot rescue himself. He needs the rescuer. It's the same with us. But that act of reaching out is significant. In the everyday stuff of our lives, in that 5%, the moments, the choices we have, the decisions we get to make of to trust Jesus or one of these other shepherds, 
the impact on yourself, your family, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your future, it's big. So the, the role we play in this whole sheep shepherd dynamic is to embrace the 5%, to hear his voice, to recognize it, and to listen. I'm gonna close reading John chapter 10, but before I read it, here's what it's gonna tell you. That to be loved by Jesus means you will hear his voice. It might not be in the timing you want it. You might wanna hear it in a different way, but you will hear his voice. To be loved by Jesus means also that his voice will be recognizable to you. When you hear it, you will know it. To be loved by Jesus means he goes ahead of you, before you. He doesn't call you and say, hey, go over there. It's kind of dangerous, but I want to see how it plays out for you first. He leads the way. To be loved by Jesus is to be saved. To be loved by Jesus is to find pasture. To be loved by Jesus is to be given life and to have it in abundance. It's unique in this chapter in John 10. You'll see that uh, John speaks of Jesus giving us eternal life and then separately of having life abundantly. And the idea there is that it's both physical and spiritual. This isn't a prosperity gospel where you can just pray for your boat and you'll get a boat. But it's the idea that the Father wants to bless his people. Sometimes sin wreaks havoc in that, but God will bring blessing in his timing and his way. To be loved by Jesus is to be known. He knows his sheep. To be loved by Jesus is to be brought into the fold and to have community because you're not meant to do this alone. An isolated sheep is a sheep in very real danger. To be loved by Jesus is to have his life laid down and taken up for you. To be loved by Jesus is to never perish. To be loved by Jesus is to never be snatched away. To be loved by Jesus is to be given eternal life. Let me read John 10 how Jesus loves us in his own words. He says, I assure you, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the door, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come so they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. As a father knows me and I know the father, I lay my life down for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the father loves me because I lay my life down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command 
from my Father. This is what it means to be known and to be loved, to be called by Jesus, the Good Shepherd. May we hear his voice and follow. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your goodness, your kindness, for your blessing and your provision, for your protection. God, I pray you just overwhelm us with humility. Gently, if that's possible, and hit us hard if that's what we need to. I pray that you'd guide us to hear your voice, to embrace our identity as your sheep, to embrace the strength given by your spirit to lead us in our lives, not to, not to be feeble and weak-minded, but to be humble and dependent and strong as we seek after you. Lead us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.